The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 3 Down EPA Way Terry McCullough's current residence was quite a step down from Bishop's Woodside Mansion. She now lived in a run-down apartment complex on Woodland Avenue in the impoverished little peninsula community of East Palo Alto. The building was a three-story architectural mutation from the early 60s. Liberal use of filmy glass panels giving it the appearance of a dirty fish tank. I parked in the street next to a Chevy Impala teetering on jack stands and walked up a weedy sidewalk to the front door. The door was propped open by a busted steam iron. After checking the apartment directory, I entered the building and started up the formed concrete staircase in the middle of the lobby to reach Terry McCullough's second floor apartment. I was about halfway up the stairs when a nasally whine from below stopped me in my tracks. Just where do you think you're going? I looked over the railing to find a middle-aged woman shaped like a bowling pin advancing in my wake. She was wearing a billowy green smock and wide square-toed pilgrim shoes that clunked loudly as she climbed. The wispy brown hair on her head was lashed to bright orange curlers the way a prisoner is lashed to the rack. Her face was deeply furrowed and it had enough makeup on it to protect it from re-entry into the earth's atmosphere. It probably hadn't made the trip more than a half dozen times. I'm visiting Miss McCullough, I said. Looks to me like you're sneaking in to steal something. Anyway, the McCullough girl ain't home. When do you expect her? I expect her when I see her. I don't keep tabs on my tenants. She waved a hand at me in disgust, then turned to go back down the stairs. This is getting to be a real frazzle. I've had more odd characters running around here since that girl moved in than I have the patience to deal with. What kind of odd characters? Characters like you, Buster. She stopped at the bottom and glowered up at me. Now get your little fanny out of my apartment house, or I'm calling the cops. I love it when women give me physical compliments, but there didn't seem to be much percentage in arguing with her. I suspected this was a time when burglary tools were going to be more persuasive than impassioned rhetoric. I walked past the landlady, who was still expending a great deal of effort looking tough, and on out the door. When I hit the sidewalk, I made a short detour to a liquor store about a half block up the street and bought a can of beer and some beef jerky. I chewed jerky and swilled beer on the curb in front of the store, and then snuck back to my car and pulled around to a spot that was a little less conspicuous. Taking the set of tools I referred to as Mother's Little Helpers from my glove box, I walked back to the apartment building and then climbed the gate at the entrance of the sunken carport that ran the length of the complex. You would have needed a barrel of Bondo to patch all the dents in the autos parked there, but there was plenty of other junk in the stalls besides cars. Rusting barbecue grills, exercise equipment, a baby's crib, stained mattresses, and even a pink toilet commode. I went the length of the carport to the back of the building, where I found an exposed metal stairway leading to fire exits for the second and third floors. 
The lock on the second floor fire escape was a cheap number with a spring bolt, but there was a metal plate covering the place where the bolt met the jam to prevent anyone from snicking the bolt back with a credit card. I took a short pry bar from my kit and worked one flattened end well under the brass piece that fitted around the doorknob. I gave the bar a sharp jab and the doorknob popped off like a cork from a bottle of cold duck, bounced once on the rusted metal flooring, and then clattered all the way down the steps to the concrete below. I crammed one end of the pry bar into the exposed latch mechanism and twisted the bar until the bolt pulled back and I could open the door. The hallway I stepped into was as dim and empty as a spinster's mailbox. Ancient wallpaper sloughed from its sides in long yellowed strips. The carpet, grease-stained and torn, was thinner than the felt from a ghetto pool table. I found Terry McCullough's apartment at the far end of the hall on the left, number 221. I knocked softly at the door and when I got no answer, slipped out a pair of lock picks and bent to the task of tricking open the lock. After a few anxious minutes, the tumblers fell in line. I pulled open the door, stepped inside. I was standing in a small studio apartment with a sliding glass door at the back. The door opened out on the terrace with what I imagined was an excellent view of the junky carport area. On my right was a kitchenette, separated from the main room by an island of freestanding cabinets. The gray linoleum on the kitchenette floor was buckled in several places, and it curled up entirely when it came to the base of a gas water heater that had been installed freestanding next to the refrigerator in violation of innumerable codes. The kitchen countertops were pale green formica and sported a dense pattern of cigarette burns and deep gouges that exposed the dark, greasy wood underneath. The main room had brown carpet and cheap, hard-looking furnishings, none of which would suffer in the least from being shot out of a circus cannon. On the left was a wall bed that folded into a unit made of unfinished particle board with shelves and nightstands on either side. Across from that were a vinyl sofa and a green metal trunk with a hook rug spread over the top. A 1950s dinette set made of rolled metal tubing stood between the sofa and the kitchenette. The only thing in the whole place that would have cost more than 25 bucks at a thrift store was a TV-VCR combo sitting on the table. There were no pictures, flowers, bric-a-brac, or stacks of cosmopolitan magazines to give you the least little hint that a woman lived here. My idea in coming was to frisk the joint while Terry McCullough was away, so I went into the kitchenette and searched through all the cabinets, stove, and refrigerator. I found food, pots, and pans, and dishes in a variety of patterns, no two of which matched. In the closet in the main room were dresses, shirts, and slacks on hangers, underwear, stockings, scarves and socks, and stacked wire baskets, and a good two dozen pairs of shoes. There was also an unlabeled videotape concealed in a hat box on the top shelf. I didn't think that Bishop's chess program could be stored on videotape, but the fact that the tape had been so carefully hidden intrigued me. I put it on the table next to the VCR for later. I went into the bathroom and searched it carefully. I took the lid off the toilet tank and peered inside. Water and rusting plumbing peered back at me. I pawed through the stuff in the cabinets and drawers under the sink and in the medicine cabinet above. There seemed to be nothing unusual or important, except that Terry McCullough had prescriptions for both Valium and Prozac. I looked into the shower stall and searched through the hamper of dirty clothes. Nothing. Back in the main room, I pulled down the wall bed and looked under the mattress. Same story. I sat on the edge of the bed and went through the drawers in the nightstands. I found a checkbook, a bank statement, and some bills, but none of them had any transactions for large amounts, either going in or coming out. 
I also found a loaded twenty-two automatic wrapped in a cotton cloth. Not such a bad idea, given the neighborhood. But not exactly standard issue for your happy-go-lucky brunette bimbette. I let the bed up and pulled up one of the dinette chairs under the ceiling fixture and stood on the chair to unscrew the piece holding the glass bowl. There were three dead flies and a lot of dust. I moved to the sofa and pulled it apart. Searching in all the cracks and unzipping the vinyl covers on the cushions to run my hand all the way around inside. This netted me two dimes, an emery board, and an empty foil condom package. I straightened up and looked around the room. The only thing left was a trunk. It was locked, but when I pushed it back from the sofa in preparation to using the pry bar, I found the key lying on the carpet underneath. I had hoped I would find Bishop's missing software in the apartment, but what I found in the trunk would be better classified as hardware. The first thing I saw was a black leather corset that was designed to come over the hips and tie in the back with a crisscross of leather straps. Below that was a folded pair of thigh-high leather boots with zippers up the side, pointy toes, and three-inch stiletto heels. Next came a long, rather stiff riding crop with a thick handle and a broader-than-typical flap of leather at the end. That covered the dominatrix portion of the collection. In the dominee portion, we had leather cuffs for restraining wrists and ankles, complete with D-rings to attach to the set of chains, and spreader bars piled up at the bottom of the trunk. There were also blindfolds, gags, nipple clamps, a variety of buckling straps and harnesses I could only guess the purpose of, and even more puzzling, an item that looked for all the world like a horse's tail. It was fashioned out of long lengths of horsehair attached to a plastic handle with a bulbous tip. I picked it up to examine it more closely. It seemed an unlikely scourge with the soft horsehair and the too awkward handle. Then I remembered Jesse Helms' outrage in an infamous Robert Maplethorpe self-portrait. It dawned on me that the picture featured Maplethorpe with something very similar sticking out of his backside. I dropped the so-called handle like a live grenade and wiped my hand on the nap of the carpet. I dumped the rest of the gear back in the trunk, locked it, and put the key and hook rug back where they had been. I had been in the apartment for a good half hour and was starting to worry about Terry McCullough returning, but I had yet to review the videotape. I could take it with me or I could fast forward through it here. Go or stay. I picked up the tape and hefted it in my hand as if its weight would tell me something and then made the decision to stay. I was reluctant to remove anything from the apartment and I didn't figure Terry McCullough could get me into much trouble if she barged in on me. I put the tape in the VCR and punched the play button. A grainy picture came on that showed a darkened concrete room with plywood on the floor. Hanging on the walls were a variety of switches, paddles, riding crops, and nasty-looking whips. These were just window dressing for the main attraction. In the center of the room, suspended from the ceiling by four heavy chains, was a solid disc of polished wood about eight feet in diameter and about three inches thick, lying naked, spread eagle on the disc, hands and feet fastened to the suspending chains and pale butt facing the camera, was a lanky young man with frizzy hair. Although his face was out of view, I guessed it was Bishop even before I recognized his voice from the cries he made. He had plenty of reason to make noise, too. Sitting next to Bishop, with her legs dangling casually off to one side, was a woman in a black leather corset, wielding a birch rod. While she held Bishop with a firm hand to the small of the back, she applied sharp, stinging blows up and down his buttocks. Terry McCullough looked just like her picture, except the picture I had didn't feature the tattoo above her left breast and the metal rings that pierced each of her nipples. 
I was leaning into the television monitor, trying to make out exactly what the tattoo was when the sound of someone putting key to lock at the apartment door registered above Bishop's little aria. With no time to think of anything better, I powered off the TV, bounded over to the sliding glass door, and let myself out onto the terrace. Crouching off to one side, I peered through the glass and watched as the apartment door swung open to reveal the dumpy landlady. She made a ponderous tour of the room, stopping once to rifle the nightstand drawers I had searched earlier, and again to examine the TV-VCR combo. She put her hand to the back of it like she was checking to see if it had been running, and then stood for a long moment with her arms akimbo, head swiveling side to side on her thick neck like a tank rotating its turret. My pulse rocketed when her gaze settled on the terrace door. I watched just long enough to see her waddling my way and pressed myself into the near corner where the terrace railing met the side of the building. The glass door slid open, and the landlady's roller and crusted head emerged over the threshold. I held my breath, willing myself invisible. But instead of looking around the terrace, the landlady hawked loudly, chewed thoughtfully on the results, and then launched a prodigious loogie clear over the back railing onto the carport. Accompanied by another throat-clearing growl, her head retracted into the apartment. The glass door slid closed. I released my breath and squinted through the glass. The landlady trundled across the room and straight out the door without stopping. I reached for the handle of the door and tugged at it, afraid she had locked me out. It opened easily enough, so I ducked back inside and powered on the VCR long enough to eject the videotape. I put the tape under my arm and went out the door and down the fire escape as I had come. My visit had given me plenty to think about, but it was already 5.30 and time to get back to the city for my appointment with a Mephisto receptionist. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.